It's summer. I actually, I'm, I have no idea when the actual start date for summer is, and I don't really care. Um, we've finished school, and basically that's, for me, I'm like, okay, it's, it's summer. Done with school, summer. The weather is turning, things are getting nice, and one of the things that I love about this time of year is the berries. Strawberries, blueberries, raspberries, blackberries. I love berries. And of all the berries, I think my favorite berry is the strawberry. The strawberry. Yeah, you can amen that. That's fine. Um, I, I wonder if you had a choice between a strawberry and a plastic strawberry, what would you choose to eat? The strawberry or the fake strawberry? What would you pick? The real one. one. Yes. (laughs) We can all immediately see that only a fool would pick the fake strawberry, right? But, But why? Why? Why would we choose the real strawberry? It's not that you can't eat the fake strawberry. You probably could if you really wanted to. In fact, I bet if you went to the store and found a bag of plastic fruit, there's probably a warning label on it saying, don't eat this because somebody probably tried to eat the plastic fruit. You know what I'm talking about? It's probably there. So it's not because you can't eat the plastic one, but it's because it's bad for you. Even if you could eat it, likely this plastic would be bad for you to ingest. Maybe it would tear up your insides. I don't know. But the real strawberry, on the other hand, is not just tasty and delicious. It's also good for you, right? It's probably full of antioxidants and all other kinds of nutritious things that I don't know about. I just think it tastes good. But this is good for you. This is healthy. Now, here's the deal. We all immediately see the folly of eating a fake strawberry. We easily and quickly see that. But we don't so quickly and easily see the folly of false gods. Somehow, we think that they will do us good. But that's like relying on a plastic strawberry to satisfy your hunger. With some things, there just is no substitute. And God is like that. There is only one God. Only one. And he alone is to be worshipped. Turn in your Bibles again to Deuteronomy chapter 4. We're picking up where we left off last week. And we saw last week, um, if you will remember, the first part of chapter 4, Moses spends his time talking about the gift of God's word and the blessings of obedience as a way of encouraging God's people to trust and obey him. Now, in the second part of chapter 4, Moses is going to spend his time focusing in on God's character, who he is, and what he has done as an encouragement to obedience, to trust and obey him. So the message for us this morning is give yourself to God. 
in wholehearted commitment. We're going to see three aspects of God's character this morning that, that Moses highlights that are meant to be an encouragement for us to love him, follow him wholeheartedly in commitment to him. So number one, God is a jealous God, so worship him faithfully. We see this in verses 15 through 24. Moses now turns and he draws a conclusion from what he just said, and he warns them about the dangers of idolatry. And this section of scripture is really an explanation of the second commandment, which we're going to look at in detail in a few weeks. But look at verse 15. Moses says, therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Beware, lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure. In other words, since God didn't show up in a physical form at Sinai, you're not to make any physical form to represent him, not even to help us worship him. So the rule is simple. Don't make anything that will serve either as an object of your worship or as an aid or help to worship. Don't make idols in the form of any figure, not in the likeness of a male or female, or the likeness of any animal, or the likeness of any bird, or the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, or the likeness of any fish, he says. Then Moses adds in verse 19, and beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the hosts of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole of heaven. Don't worship sun, moon, or stars. These are all God's creation, and they're gifts of common grace to mankind. They're given to govern the rhythms of life, day and night, tides and seasons, to give light and heat, to help produce food. These are all gifts. They're all blessings, but they're not to be worshiped. Don't worship anything in creation. Worship the creator alone. Now notice the list that Moses gives here is in the reverse order of how things were created. And I think that's intentional to help us see what idolatry does. It leads to corruption it flips things upside down. When we worship the creation rather than the creator, the created order is reversed. It is corrupted. The example that Paul gives in Romans chapter one is homosexuality. Men exchange natural relations with women as God designed it as part of the created order. They exchange those and are consumed with passion for other men and likewise women for other women. So, idolatry is corruptive, but idolatry is also attractive. Look at verse 19. It shows us the appeal of idolatry. Moses says, don't be drawn away. Don't be lured into it. We have to be aware, beware of cheap but attractive alternatives to God. Now, we don't typically worship wood and stone. We don't typically bow down before little idols and so I think we might, we might think that we're not really vulnerable to idolatry, but we're continually coming up with substitutes for God. Anything that we submit to, serve, or trust in place of God is an idol. How do you know if something has become an idol in your life? Ask yourself, where am I looking for my security? 
my strength, my help, deliverance, my well-being, my significance, my satisfaction. It could be yourself. It could be your money. It could be your job. It could be the government. That is a common one. People have made a God out of the government on both sides of the political aisle. It could be entertainment. It could be any number of things. Moses warns them to be very careful, he says. Don't be lured away by cheap substitutes for God. The fake strawberry might look good, but don't fall for it. So in verses 15 through 19, Moses begins by saying, don't make an idol in any form whatsoever. And then he explains why in verses 20 through 24. It's because you are God's treasured possession that he guards with a jealous love. Look at verse 20. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt to be a people for his own inheritance as you are this day. God rescued you for himself. You are his inheritance. You are his treasured possession. He brought you into an exclusive covenant relationship with him. So be faithful to God. Then in verses 21 to 22, Moses reminds them again for the third time that he's not going to get to go into the land. And it's an example, his example is a call for them to be faithful. And then verse 23, he continues saying, take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you and make a carved image, the form of anything the Lord your God has forbidden you. Why? Now we get the reason in verse 24. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Be faithful and do not make any idols. Why? Because God is a jealous God. And that is a good thing. But it's also serious. It's good because that is what you would expect of a God who loves his treasured people. I want to use an illustration from Kevin DeYoung. Imagine with me for a minute that a husband brings home another woman to his wife. And he says to his wife, I'd like you to meet someone really special to me. Now, don't get me wrong, you're special too, but I want to have a relationship with this other person as well. Now, I still plan to spend a lot of time with you, but I also want you to know that I want to spend uh, time with her. There'll be some times I want to spend with her as well. And, and you both mean so much to me. What should the wife say? Should she say, okay, honey, whatever you want. I'm just happy to be part of your life. No. She should say, I won't share your love with anyone else. It's me or her. Choose. And if she said that with great passion no one would think that she's being cruel or selfish or unfair. That's how a wife should act. In fact, we'd be worried if she wasn't angry. Like a marriage covenant, our covenant relationship with God is exclusive. And a God who is not jealous of rivals would be just as contemptible as a wife who didn't care if her husband was faithful to her or not. 
So it's good that God is jealous over his people. It points to the strength of his commitment, of his love for his beloved. God is also jealous for his honor. We're to worship him for his excellence. As we'll see, there is none other worthy. But any physical form that we would make of him would diminish his glory. So it's also serious. That's why Moses says twice, beware, verse 16, verse 19. And twice he says to take care, verse 15, verse 23. God will not tolerate any rivals. Idolatry brings God's judgment because it's a breach of their covenant relationship, like cheating on God. And this arouses his jealousy as a consuming fire. God's commitment to us is total. His love is exclusive and intense. In a word, it is jealous. They're in a covenant relationship with God, and they must remain faithful. Now, the same exact gospel logic applies to us as well. God, through Jesus Christ, has redeemed you and I. In his love, he has made us his treasured possession. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. And he makes the exact same demand for total devotion to him. So Paul can tell the Corinthians, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor or glorify God in your body. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. We have to offer God our exclusive love and devotion. And part of that love for God means worshiping him in a way that pleases and honors him. The first commandment tells us, um, you shall have no other gods before me. It, it, the, the commandment is to worship God alone, worship the right God. The second commandment, though, tells us that we are to worship the right God in the right way. Worship God faithfully. God does not want us to use images to help us worship him, no matter how sincere that we are. Last weekend, a week ago Saturday, I was at a Catholic church giving a commencement speech, and there was this giant crucifix uh, up on the center stage. It's a, it's a cross, the giant statue of Jesus on the cross. And every time uh, one of the Catholics went up front, they would bow to it. I have no doubt in my mind that they were trying, they intended to show honor. I have no question about that. Their motives were sincere, but that is not how God wants to be worshiped. That is breaking the second commandment. They're not breaking the first commandment. They're worshiping the right God. They're breaking the second commandment. They're worshiping the right God in the wrong way. Another example from the Bible is King Jehu. Jehu is praised for destroying the worship of Baal from the land of Israel. 2 Kings 10.28 says, Thus Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. Good job, Jehu. Well done. However, we learn in the next verse that he did not take down the two golden calves in Bethel and Dan. Verse 29. Now, if he has removed all of the worship of Baal, what in the world are these two golden calves doing? What are they doing here? The reason they're here is because these golden calves were set up to represent 
the God of Israel and used to worship him. So when Jehu's ancestor, King Jeroboam, first set up these two golden calves, this is what he said. He said, you've gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Like, we're going to keep the business local. <laughs> like, we don't want you going up to Jerusalem to worship Yahweh. So instead, he made these two golden calves. He put one in Bethel and one in Dan. And he said this, he said, Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. It's exactly the same thing that Aaron said when they worshiped the golden calf after the Exodus. These two calves were representations of Yahweh, the Lord. They were altars that first king tells us, Jeroboam, they were altars that he devised from his own heart. 1 Kings 12, 33. He came up with this idea, and no doubt he was sincere about it. But he was worshiping the right God in the wrong way. It's possible to be sincere and to be wrong. This shows us that the sincerity of our feelings in worship is not the standard of whether or not our worship pleases God. The standard is God's word. How has God said he wants to be worshiped? Martin Luther said, for God will not have us direct him how he is to be served. He intends to teach and direct us in this matter. Without his word, all is idolatry and lies. However devout it might seem, and however beautiful it might appear, for here you learn that it is not enough to say and think, I'm doing this for the glory of God. I intend it for the true God. I want to serve the only God. All idolaters say and intend just that. The example of Jehu and others, we could add other many, several examples like Nadab and Abihu. Those examples show that how we worship matters to God. We may not worship God in any way that we like, but only in the way that he commands. The second commandment forbids self-willed worship. That is, worship as we choose rather than worship as God commands. One application of this is the regulative principle of worship that we follow at GFC. What is that? Simply put, it states, we are not to worship God in any other way than what he commands in his word. As John Calvin put it, God disapproves of all modes of worship not expressly sanctioned in his word. That means our worship gatherings should only employ those things that we can show are appropriate from the Bible. That includes things like reading the word, preaching the word, communion, baptism, prayer, praise, feasting, fellowship, giving, etc. It's why we don't have statues, pray to saints, sprinkle holy water, have drama or female pastors. We are to worship God only in the way that God directs. And this is a good thing. This is a good thing. The point of the regulative principle is actually freedom. It frees us from man-made ideas and preferences. It frees us from the false and the foolish. It frees us from wondering whether or not our worship pleases God. And within the principle, there's room for variation on the specifics in liturgy. We should sing, 
but should we sing three songs or five songs? We should take communion. Should we use one cup or lots of little cups? There's freedom in how we do the specifics, but not the content, not what we actually do. The point is we are to worship God in the right way. God is a jealous God, so worship him faithfully. Second, God is a merciful God. Love him fully. Love him wholeheartedly. I just love this next section of scripture. We're going to see this in verses 25 through 31, and I think there's tremendous encouragement here for us. When they rebel and are punished, Moses tells them there's a possibility of return to God. In verses 25 through 28, Moses is going to list out all the different punishments for idolatry, for making carved images. And this is the first passage in the book of Deuteronomy that hints at the fact that Israel is not going to be able to keep this covenant. Most of those references are going to come at the end, and it's going to start to point us ahead to the need for a new covenant. This is the first one. They're not going to be able to live faithfully. So look at what Moses says, beginning in verse 25. He says, When you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you'll be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see, nor hear, nor eat, nor smell. Idolatry brings God's judgment. This rebellion brings his judgment. And God's punishments are the opposite of his promises. This is the undoing of his covenant blessings. Look at this. It's death rather than life. It's kicked out rather than keeping the land. It's few in number rather than a multitude. And if you want to worship other gods, that's what you'll get. Ironically, we see here that the punishment for idolatry is more idolatry. And the futility and the frustration and the misery that goes with it. Idolatry is its own punishment. They would worship powerless gods and find there is no help in them. If you look to gods that can't see, hear, eat, or smell, they can't even do these basic things, trusting and relying on them, then that's all you're going to get. Impotent gods, powerless gods. They cannot save, strengthen, or satisfy. They can do nothing. There is no hope of saving power in them. These false gods would be a wretched substitute for a God who can act and has proven he can act on their behalf. This teaches us that worshiping idols is a punishment, but worshiping the Lord is a privilege. And it's a warning that all of our substitutes for God are worthless. They are not worth trusting. They will fail you. They will disappoint you. It's like trying to lean on a cattail for a cane. It won't work. These things, the things of the world, were not made to be our security, strength, joy, etc. But there's hope, and I love this. If God's people return to him wholeheartedly, restoration is possible. You see, 
the, the futility and the frustration and the misery and all of these punishments uh, uh, because of worshiping these lifeless idols, it's all meant to drive them back to the living God. Look, look at verses 29 to 31. But from there, that's from exile, you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and all your soul. When you're in tribulation and all these things come upon you, all this bad stuff, in latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. When they're in exile and in tribulation and all these bad things start happening to them and they seek the Lord, they'll find him if they seek him with all their heart and soul. You see, God's punishment is meant to lead them to repent, to come back to him wholeheartedly. Sometimes the consequences of our actions lead us back to the Lord. Sometimes people have to hit absolute rock bottom before they come to Christ or return to Christ. That's how it was for my dad. He had a moral failure at work that cost him his job and almost cost him his marriage. He called me up one night sobbing, totally broken, and at the end of himself, out on some country road, threatening to take his own life. That's what it took for God to draw him to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. And praise the Lord, God brought healing and reconciliation in his marriage. Dad and mom got serious about their faith. They started reading the Bible and praying together every day. It transformed not only his life, but their marriage and our whole family. And through the circumstances, those circumstances were really, really hard. But I thank God that he used it to bring my dad to faith in Christ for salvation. See, crisis is one of the times that people are most open to the message of the gospel. The encouragement in these verses is that it's never too late. It is never too late to return to God. If you seek him with all your heart and soul, you will find him. This describes a wholehearted commitment to him, loving God fully. When we mess up, if we turn back to God in faith and obedience, God will, will forgive our sins and restore us to relationship with him. And he can restore relationship with other people as well. Why? Because the Lord your God is a merciful God. He is a forgiving God. He is a faithful God. He will not abandon, destroy, or forget his covenant with you. Those are three proofs of his mercy. Though we be unfaithful to him, God remains faithful. God is a consuming fire to a rebel. but God is merciful to the repentant. When you fail, not if, when you fail, when you sin, know that you can return to God in repentance and faith because he is merciful. Moses anchors them in God's character. God is a jealous God, so worship him faithfully. God is a merciful God, so love him fully. And third, there is only one true and loving God. Serve him gratefully. We see this in verses 32 to 40. The Lord proves that he alone is God in two ways, by rescuing them from Egypt and revealing his word at Sinai. Look at verse 32. For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, 
and ask from one end of the heaven to the other whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Moses says, look through the length and breadth of human history. Go all the way back to the creation of man. Look as far as you want from one side of heaven to the other, from one side of earth to the other. Nothing like this has ever been done. No so-called God has ever done what God did in the Exodus and at Sinai, redeeming a people for his treasured possession, revealing his word to them. Now, Egypt was polytheistic. They had many gods. And by rescuing them from Egypt, God showed that those gods are powerless. The Lord did what no other God could, showing that he alone is God. There's no other. That's the point. They're to worship God alone because the Lord alone is God. Now, God did these things because of his love. Look at verse 37. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them, and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than yourselves to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Know therefore today and lay it to heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. There is no other. The Lord God is sovereign over all over all heaven and earth. And Moses stresses God's loving and gracious election. This is the first time that that we see Israel as God's chosen people, although it's been implied all along. It was love that moved God to choose to redeem them. God did it himself by his presence and his power. And it was all by God's grace, its undeserved favor. He did for them what they could not do for themselves, drawing them out of Egypt, defeating enemies too great for them. And the theological conclusion that we're supposed to draw from this is repeated twice. The Lord is God, there is no other. Verse 35, verse 39. Moses says, lay this truth to heart and then respond correctly to God's gracious salvation. Verse 40, Therefore you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land the Lord your God is giving you for all time. Lay it to heart. There is only one true God who is gracious and loving and powerful Beyond all measure. There is none like him. He has proven that. So serve him gratefully. Now, of course, the only work of God that is greater than this is the redemption that we have in his son, Jesus Christ. Once again, in love, God chose to graciously redeem a people for his treasured possession. And he did it all himself 
by his own presence and power. We're saved by grace. He did what we could not do for ourselves, rescuing us from bondage to sin and defeating enemies too great and terrible for us. In the same way, lay to heart what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. It should move you to trust him, to love him, to serve him gratefully all your days, living for his glory. Come to the one true God. Turn from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. God is merciful. He will forgive you. He will redeem you. He will make you part of his own treasured possession, his treasured people. Receive God's gracious gift of salvation by faith in him and then love and serve Christ gratefully all your days. See, in this passage of scripture, we see how God's saving grace always work, how it always works. God of his own free and loving choice and by his own presence and power acts to deliver people from bondage and he brings them into new life with him, making them his treasured possession. And the response demanded is the same, grateful and joyful devotion to him alone. The first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me. That's not just a command to reject false gods, but to worship the true God alone. See, God doesn't want to just be recognized as one God among many gods. He doesn't even want to be recognized as the best of all the possible gods. He is the one and only God. There is no other Therefore, he alone is to be served and worshipped because he alone is worthy. He demands exclusive commitment and devotion. But I want you to notice carefully. We have to notice this carefully. Our obedience to God, it's not driven by duty, but by delight in who he is and what he has done for you. It's not grudging. It's grateful because of what God has done. Because God chose us in love, we gladly and gratefully forsake all others and commit ourselves to him fully. Just like a bride gladly commits to her groom. So choose this day whom you will serve. As Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and Baal. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve God and the world's respect. You cannot serve God and yourself. Only one can sit on the throne of your life. Only one. And there's only one true and loving God. The last three verses of our text today, Moses sets aside three cities of refuge east of the Jordan. The laws regarding that is in Deuteronomy 19, and we'll address that when we get there. Give yourself to God in wholehearted commitment. Why? Let me remind you what we've seen about our glorious God today as a way to try to move you in your hearts, to stir in your hearts to give yourself to God in wholehearted commitment. Why? Because God is a jealous 
merciful, forgiving, faithful, loving, gracious, powerful, redeeming, sovereign God who has set his love on you, chosen you, rescued you, and made you his treasured possession. And all of this is an undeserved gift of grace. So worship him faithfully, love him wholeheartedly, and serve him gratefully all of your days. Lay this to heart. He alone is God, and he alone is worthy. Let's pray. God, we just thank you and praise you for who you are. We thank you and praise you for who you are. We thank you for what you have done through Jesus Christ in rescuing us and calling us to yourself. Lord, though we know we can never repay you for what you have done, we want to live our lives wholly committed to you. And we pray, God, that you would do that through us by the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask for that and we pray for that, that our lives might glorify you. We ask it and pray it in Jesus' name, amen.